Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by political consultant, friend of The Lincoln Project, and an old friend of mine, Matthew Dowd. Matthew is the founder of Country Over Party and author of the upcoming book, Revelations on the River, which will be released this coming November, but is available for pre-order now. Matthew, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Matthew, you and I go back longer than probably either of us care to remember. Probably darn near, let's say if I go back to George W. Bush in 1997, we're talking almost 25 years, which is crazy town. It is crazy town. So, Matthew, today I want to talk about how we're going to win this in 2022, what we all need to do and how we're going to come together and some of the challenges and opportunities we face along the way. But first, let's talk about Texas. You're sitting there on the front lines. You have a front row seat to what's happening. So let's just get into this. So in Texas now we have SB8, which just took effect on September 1st, which obviously is the six-week abortion ban with the added vigilantism. If the first part wasn't bad enough, we added the second part. The voter suppression bill that Abbott just signed. We've got the anti-mask mandates. We have the hangover from the power grid failure this winter. You know, Ted Cruz running to Cancun. I mean, for someone who lives down in a beautiful part of the world, in a beautiful part of Texas, how do you see it from the front row? Is it as crazy to you as it is to the rest of us who are just watching it from a distance? So I would add two more things to that, which is the governor called a special session to do redistricting here in two weeks. And at the last minute, he decided to add two more items to the call on redistricting. And the two items are a ban of transgender folks in school athletics. And then he also added a legislation to pass a statewide ban on mask mandates. So it's worse. It keeps getting worse. Here's what I think. I've lived in Texas almost 40 years. I love Texas, but I hate our politics. The GOP politicians have failed the state from the governor to the lieutenant governor. It's been cruel and craven in how they've done it. They've governed totally towards themselves and about 5% of the population of the state, which is the sort of very base Republican part of the state in the prime Republican primary. Texas, I think, is on the verge of turning purple. All of the things they've done may help push that along in 2022. I think there is a shot for Democratic candidates to win statewide if they have the right candidates, the right campaign, and the right message in that. But it is a perfect example of what's happening nationally. But Texas has taken it, I think, to a further extreme even than Donald Trump has. I mean, we had mass shootings in Texas, and the Republicans' response to that was to make it so anybody can openly carry a handgun without a permit or training. And everything they've done in response to all of these issues has been the exact opposite of what you'd want to do. COVID, the grid, as you said, any number of issues you can name, they've done the exact opposite of what anybody with common sense would want to do. And so I think if the Democrats can pull their act together, and as you know, I've said this and you've probably seen it, I, I believe the Democratic Party is the only vehicle right now to 
push back against all of this stuff, including the attacks on our democracy. And I think everybody who believes in those things needs to put aside their sort of differences on some issues. And whether you're an independent or a soft Republican, you should start supporting Democrats at every level. I think that's right. And one thing that we've been actively working on and saying to as many people as listen is that, you know, we need to build that grand coalition and it needs to include people from Liz Cheney to AOC. And I've been on the phone with independents, Republicans, Democratic groups, a lot of Democratic groups, admittedly, all of whom are now saying this is about democracy. None of the other stuff that we care about matters if the baseline of how we operate disappears. And certainly we see that in Texas. And Matthew, you know, on these special sessions, it sounds like Greg Abbott will just continue to call them between now and and I guess the March primary of next year to continually basically just enshrine whatever ugliness he can to ensure, my guess is at the bottom line, that maybe an Alan West or a Don Huffines, the two nuts that are running against him in a Republican primary, can't get to his right. You say the right word, the ugliness of this all. And I mean, Texas is a beautiful state filled with good and decent people, but the politicians are just ugly, ugly in their way they present their hearts and their souls. And it's, it's an amazing thing to watch unfold. I think other states should be concerned because I think Texas has taken this baton that Donald Trump started and they've sort of running even further miles down the road on this. But I don't think they'll stop until they're held accountable. And the only way that I see they'll they'll be held accountable is through elections. And he'll keep doing this. They'll keep pushing further. I thought, you and I've had this conversation, I thought 2020 was the most important election of my lifetime. I actually think 2022 is more important because if Republicans win, based on everything they've done since the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, they'll be even worse. I mean, again, it's hard sometimes for us to wrap our heads around it because, again, you and I came up at a time or at least I came up at a time, right? I was very young on the 2000 Bush campaign. It was a campaign very much, at least at the time, remember, was a much different world, very much rooted in optimism as his governorship was. You know, think about the issues that he ran on, which were decency, education, right? Domestic policy. Now, 9-11, 20th anniversary coming up this weekend, changed all that. But at the time, you know, there were good and decent people, as you said, on both sides of the aisle, there were Republicans who were certainly conservative, but most of the Republicans were business people, right? Because the legislature is only supposed to meet six months out of every two years. So these people are supposed to have real jobs they go back to. Now, apparently, they're maybe never going to go home. And now what we're seeing is like Abbott. Remember, we remember Abbott going back to when he was chief justice of the state Supreme Court, when he was attorney general. This was not a guy who was ever seen to be a fire-breathing radical extremist. Yet now this is where he is. And I mean, I guess, Matthew, as someone who spent a lot of time around different candidates, have you ever seen a transformation like this where the guy must look at his portrait and see Dorian Gray on a daily basis? <laughs> I've never seen it. And I think you describe Abbott very well. I mean, he, he was a principled conservative. I disagreed with him on any number of things, but I always thought he came from a principled place. He was very measured and calm in all of the things he did. And now I trace it back. His began when, I don't know if you remember that Jade Helm thing, that crazy thing where this conspiracy developed that somehow the National Guard was going to take over the state or something. And then he actually called up and gave credence to the crazy conspiracy. When I saw that, I was like, wow, he's gone off the deep end. And then at session after session, specials and regular sessions, he's only pursued this cultural war 
that he seems to now think is going to give him some status among the Republican primary voters. I think Abbott wants to run for president. He's trying to position himself as the heir apparent to Donald Trump in all of this. I think that part of what he's done is he's watched other Republicans like the lieutenant governor. Well, Dan Patrick, who was a talk radio host before he got elected. Talk radio host who's constantly threatened to run Abbott in the Republican primary. And so that has moved Abbott as he's watched that. And instead of being a leader and speaking truth to people, he's gone right along with all of the lies, conspiracy and awfulness. So, no, I haven't ever seen somebody go from somebody that I was thought measured reasonable, principled conservative to what he is now. Think about if you go back to this winter, the winter of 21 in Texas, when the power grid did fail because the power companies didn't want to be subject to the regulations required to be either plug into the Western grid or the Eastern grid. And he went on Fox News. And what did he do? He blamed it on frozen windmills and the Green New Deal. Now, (laughs) frozen windmills, that's a legitimate problem, but not when your mass power generation stations, whether it's coal, gas, whatever it is, have failed, right? Windmills weren't going to do you any good anyway. And the Green New Deal had nothing to do with this. So what he did was the playbook that we've now gotten horribly used to, which is something bad happens lie, which is what he's done, and then pursue a solution that has nothing to do with it. I mean, like, for example, the grid, 15% of the entire power structure of Texas power comes from clean energy. The rest comes from fossil fuels. So time after time, when you looked at the data on this, the problem became the fossil fuel plants uh, that were processing the energy into electricity. I mean, I was without power and water for a week uh, here. As were many of my friends. Yeah. Many, probably many of our friends, I should say. Yes many of our friends. And so what did he do in the legislature? Did nothing to fix the problem. And he basically made it easier for power companies to charge consumers more. That's basically what he did. So we're going to go through this. I'm sure we went already going through some, some power outage in the summer heat. But, you know, if we face with that again, nothing's been fixed to prevent this problem from happening again. Well, and as someone who lives probably... I'd say 1,100 miles due east of those massive fires in California, that smoke is with us every day. So we should not underestimate that Mother Nature has always been probably the toughest thing we face year in and year out as humans. And now, you know, Abbott and these goons seem to be want to make it harder for people to contend with that. And Matthew, this is one of those things, too, that as I think about myself as a former Republican, the stuff that they do, it feels intentionally like making it harder on the people who already have it hardest. Yeah, they made it harder on the most vulnerable. Look at everything they've done. So their voting restriction stuff they did, it made it harder on the people that have the hardest time and the longest lines and the the hardest ability to vote. They made it harder on them. What they've done on choice here, basically rolling over Roe versus Wade on this, they haven't made it harder on the wealthy because they can just get on a plane and fly to Denver or go to New Mexico or wherever else. They've made it harder on the most vulnerable people that don't even have the money to pay a you know, $150 speeding ticket if they got a speeding ticket going down the highway. So yeah, in every single instance, the wealthy and the privileged are going to be fine and they'll get through it, but the majority of Texans are going to suffer. A couple of weeks ago, I had H.W. Brands on the podcast, a historian at the University of Texas, and he made the note that you know Texas is one of the most diverse and vibrant states in the country. He pinpointed Houston, but I think Texas has always had, I I believe, a vibrant and diverse history going back to pre-1836 and independence. But he also noted that the legislature is wildly 
misrepresented because they've gerrymandered the hell out of everything. So do you believe that what we're seeing is this desire to maintain power, maintain power, and maintain power, and now all of these guys have to worry about, because they live in such red districts, some wacko from their right or from the Trump wing is going to jump up and try and beat them? Is it just that simple? It's pretty much that simple. Because the way the districts have been drawn and because a Democrat hasn't won statewide since I ran Bob Bullock's campaign for lieutenant governor, the last Democrat to win statewide in 1994. God bless Texas. Exactly. God bless Texas. Bullock was a great lieutenant governor. They now think because they can't be beat, both a combination of redistricting and the state still being, it was deep red. Now it's much lighter red today. It's moving to purple. The question is, when will that happen? I think for sure it'll happen by 2026, but it could happen in 2022 because of how bad the GOP has acted over the course of the last few years. That's their whole game right now. And so until they lose a general election, and I put a little bit of the blame on this on some Democratic campaigns. I mean, I've always thought that Texas is more independent than it is anything than it is Democrat or Republican. It's more Western in that way, a much more Western state in that way. It's more like a Colorado than it is like a Mississippi in that, though there's obviously parts that are like that. Democrats have never run well on what Texas values fundamentally are. I mean, they've run on policy and they've run on process, but they haven't run on values. And until we run campaigns here based on values, some fundamental values like integrity and honesty and community and compassion and decency, and respect for others, until we run on broad values and not get into these, you know, 10 point policy debates. It's tough to win because Republicans have traditionally always run on some values, even though we can disagree that they're being hypocritical. People always vote based on values. And unless they think you're aligned with them on values, they have a hard time voting for you. So I think it's ready to change. I'm hoping that other Democrats recognize this, that yes, the GOP has been bad, but they also have to recognize Democrats have to recognize their own flaws in this process about not running the campaigns they need to do to win and the candidates they need to do to win, it'll change the question of does it come in two years or four years or whenever, but it's going to change, and I, I'm hoping it'll change in 2022. I love the idea of making it change in 22 or 24. My biggest fear is that we've only just begun on some of this stuff so that even if there are more of us than there are of them, to oversimplify it, that those of us who want to participate will find it more and more difficult to do so and as you know, so many of these things come down to the margins. And so they don't have to make sure every person of color or every Democrat doesn't vote. They just need to make sure enough of them don't get a chance to vote. And so do you worry about that, that they will use the power they've accumulated to further disenfranchise more people? Well, that's what they've been doing for 20 years. I mean, Texas, when you rank states by ease of voting in the 90s, Texas was 14th in the country on ease of voting. Today, Texas is 50th. 50th on ease of voting. We're last on ease of voting. And so that's been a concerted effort by the Republicans to put impediments in place. But also it's by Republicans not to catch up with other states who are making it easier for politicians to be held accountable. And I mean, that's really what fundamentally this is about is Republicans deep down know they're passing stuff that's very unpopular with the constituency, but they want to figure out a way to make the electorate not look like the state in a way that allows them to win elections and ultimately not be held accountable because that's what they don't want. That's what this is all about. They want to continue doing awful things and not be held accountable. And as I said, the vote is the only way these politicians will be held accountable. 
So there are a lot of big companies based in Texas. AT&T, first that comes to mind, which I did work for years ago. Apple has a big presence. Facebook has a big presence. The University of Texas system. A lot of these big companies, 7-Eleven, Southwest Airlines, American Airlines, Dell. But you can't get a word out of them on any of this stuff. Is everything on the corporate front now just keep your head down, keep your mouth shut, worry about the bottom line, and this will all pass? When you look at the landscape, you have to see that. I mean, they're getting what they want, I guess, out of the state GOP politicians and the GOP legislature. So they're getting what they want, whether it's tax breaks or regulatory relief or whatever it is they want. But I think that what they're doing is setting this up. So at some point in time, this always happens, you know, that famous poem about Nazi Germany, and I supply it here, which is, you know, first they came for the people of color, and then they came for the immigrants, and then they came for the women, and, you know, they're going to come for you next. Martin Emailer makes an appearance two podcasts in a row this week. Oh, so. That's really funny. <laughs> and I think they have to be pushed. I mean, we have to treat corporations like politicians. And not saying something is as bad as doing something bad, in my view. Not being actively involved. They have thousands and thousands and thousands of employees. They give hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in this effort. And at some point, they have to decide, you know, is it worth us getting a tax rate or a tax break that's going to save us 1% or losing our democracy? And that's what the fundamental question is. You know, that's the thing that worries me the most. And, you know, you and I have had many philosophical discussions, but my biggest concern more than anything is that nobody cares about much else other than the dollar, that these politicians just want to keep raising the money so they can get reelected, and the corporations will do whatever it is they can to make sure, to your point, that they save a quarter of a percent. Are we really just that base at this point? I think there are some enlightened corporate officials that I think look at this with horror, but I think by and large, too many of the GOP politicians and too many of the corporations are focused on me and not on our we. They're just focused on their own me and what they can get out in the next quarter or what politician can get, you know, one more than enough votes to win, which is completely antithetical to our U.S. Constitution, which I constantly try to remind people. The U.S. Constitution doesn't start out with I. The U.S. Constitution starts out with we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union. It's all based on the common good, and it's all based upon what's a benefit to all of us. And, you know, another example of it is, you know, productivity in the last 20 years has increased three times. Average worker pay has not increased at all. So the idea that, like, as companies grow and all of that, and employees will benefit, and all, that hasn't worked out the way people have, have sort of said our system is supposed to work out. So it's, it's not only a political problem, it's an economic problem where decisions are being made that do not have the best interest of all of us. They do not have the best interest of all of us. The inability to deal with climate change is another, just push it off, push it off, kick it down the road, kick it down the road, don't deal with it. We are seeing what's happening now, Reed. We're seeing all of this finally catch up to us. And, you know, at some point, I am hoping the electorate looks up and says, none of these folks that are in office are doing anything in our best interest on anything. I mean, that would be my message. They don't care about you. They only care about themselves. So, you know, it's interesting. I was listening to a news report this morning on jobs, and it was more about open jobs than joblessness. And there are millions of open jobs that people can't hire for. And it's like everybody's scratching their heads as to figure out why. And it seems to me the reason is, is because people don't want to work at a grocery store for $9 an hour. 
would be my guess because they can't afford to. You know, I was in Austin a few weeks back this summer with my daughter and we were at Terry Black's barbecue. They were advertising jobs, starting wage, $28 an hour, 28 bucks an hour to cut meat or to work the register. So they clearly, you know, at least in Terry Black's case, they're trying to move in the right direction. But why is it so confusing to, you know, whether or not it's the political class or the media class that what you're seeing is not people unwilling to work, it's they're unwilling to work for a wage they frankly just can't live with anymore. Well, you know, this is a great part of this conversation because it's a combination is not only are they unwilling to work for a wage that sort of puts them in a position where they're barely making ends week. I mean, look at city after city in Texas, Austin, Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, the average way you couldn't afford a two bedroom apartment in the wages here. So it's one wages haven't stayed up with productivity and how successful companies have been in profits. But it's also two is workers. They're looking at their quality of life and where they are and what they want to do and what kind of companies they want to work for and what are the values those companies represent and who they are. And so I think it's a combination. It's a combination of wages having kept up with productivity. And two is corporate values. There is a disconnect between the values of the average person and the values of corporations. And I think that's happening. I mean, this is another argument also for a complete change in our immigration laws because our immigration laws are not set up in a way for all of the jobs that exist for people to work. We don't have it set up. It's a mess. It's not a border problem. It's a legal immigration problem that we don't have an efficient system in place to allow any number of folks, whether it's from Mexico or Europe or wherever it is, to come in here and work. I think until companies finally decide that the profits they generate aren't worth abandoning the middle class, it's abandoning the values of the middle class, and abandoning the economics of the middle class. And that's what they've done in this. So it's corporations with GOP politicians who are throwing out red meat so these voters don't have to get distracted by what they're actually doing to their livelihoods. I mean, have we reached sort of in-state Ayn Rand, Milton Friedman, Alan Greenspan, sort of, I've got mine, you go get yours, sort of theory of economics? You know, Joe Biden's, when he started out running last time, which I completely agreed with, which is that this is the fight for the soul of America. And unfortunately, I mean, people thought, okay, 2020, Trump loses, Biden wins. Okay, we've won the soul of America. We haven't. And in many ways, it's worse today than it was. I mean, I can't hardly believe I'm saying that because of how bad Donald Trump was. I mean, I'm glad Joe Biden's president for any number of reasons, because he's a decent person that cares but also is it's unleashed this awfulness that's now gone all over the country like a virus. If we care about the ideals of America and the soul of America, there is no way we can stop fighting in this because look what's happened in Texas. And that came in the aftermath of the 2020 election. Well, and of course, what do we know also is that they have used the big lie consistently to say, look at what happened last year. We must have, quote unquote, election security to ensure that nothing like that ever happens again. And what is the nothing like that? It's a Democrat or someone they don't like winning. The one thing I'll give them credit for, they're consistent in this. A problem presents itself or no problem presents itself. The first inclination is to lie, distract, and then move on to something that has nothing to do with either an existing problem or solving a problem that doesn't exist. Texas had a higher turnout than ever before, probably the most secure election we've ever had. I think they prosecuted one person out of 11 million votes cast as some sort of election fraud in this. And what did they do? Ranking 50th on ease of voting, they're making it harder to vote. 
Well, you know, we were talking to some folks a couple weeks ago who had some concerns about the argument over critical race theory, CRT. And they're like, well, what are we supposed to do? And I said, well, and I say this, Matthew, to our Democratic friends with all the love in the world, it's like the Republicans always find those old cartoons with the big black bomb and the fuse and they throw it at you. And rather than throwing it back, you would try and explain why it shouldn't blow up. <laughs> and then it does. And I said, when you hear the expression CRT, what you should hear is inward, 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 because that's what they're saying. They're trying to scare white people, I assume in the suburbs and maybe working class white people into believing that somehow their kids are going to go to school and be indoctrinated into some sort of Marxist theology of whatever craziness they could come up with. But they try and explain it. Oh, well, first, we don't do it. Second of all, here's what it really means. And as you know, if you're explaining, you're typically losing. Republicans didn't even know eight months ago what critical race theory was. I mean, they didn't even exist in the conversation. And now they're having this conversation. This is like Fahrenheit 451 or Nazi Germany. It's our 21st century version of burning books. What they're saying is don't teach history and don't teach facts about what's happened in America and what we've gone on. And Democrats constantly think it's a rational argument. It's not. It's an emotional argument that Democrats have to learn to push back with emotionally. You can't break an emotional connection with a rational argument ever. It never works. They have to turn this on the Republicans. And basically, again, I'm going to say this again and again and again, tell the public the Republican Party does not stand for the same values you do. Well, you know, just to reach back to Germany in the 30s again, after Hitler took power, he said that no scientific theory or mathematical theory that had been developed by a Jew could be included in any university work. And the German physicists were sort of like, well... You see, like science doesn't work that way. Math doesn't work that way. It really doesn't care what you think about the progenitor of the idea. Science is going to go do what it wants to do. And that seems like where we sort of are now, too, whether or not it's on masks or whatever. Folks are like, I'd rather go to a football game than get vaccinated. I'd rather not wear a mask. I don't know that there's any way to convince them otherwise at this point. The resounding defeats of the GOP that, as it stands today, is the only alternative today is a resounding defeat. I mean, it's so far afield, and we're coming up on the anniversary of 9-11 and the flight that was taken down. Flight 93. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, let's roll. That we're so far afield from let's roll, where people sacrifice themselves for the greater good. It's amazing that we've reached this point in a country that I have always been proud, always would be willing to make the sacrifice needed in order to benefit others. We have an entire political party, the Republicans, who have just abandoned the idea of self-sacrifice or servant leadership. Well, I'll tell you, just as an aside, as we're coming up on the anniversary of 9-11, I was in Shanksville, 9-11-2002, for the one-year anniversary there. And, you know, we were, you know, President Bush, Mrs. Bush came and the families all came. And it was a very solemn event. There was a wreath laying there and the president's military aide was holding the wreath. And, you know, these people all filed by. We had set up some hay bales the night before. And that morning, it became a shrine to all of the people on that plane, the you know, family members, Uncle Joey, everybody. And as they filed by, the military aide has tears streaming down his face. President Bush has tears streaming down his face. But the relatives had this almost solemn pride about them, right? That when the time came, their folks did what was necessary at their own expense. And I think you're right. We may be 20 years distant from that, but it feels much further than that as you call it, the soul of America feels much more empty than that just 20 years on. Yeah, that's what's amazing where we've come in that amount of time. I mean, 
think about the sacrifice people made during World War II about like rubber drives and use of power and all of the things they made, like, like, yeah, we're willing to do that. And it wasn't even about us. It was about protecting our allies in Europe who were getting overrun. Again, it's just the basic fundamental values of common decency and sense of community. The Republicans see now those values that we were raised as children are like a sign of weakness. Right. Well, let me turn to, you know, next November, 14 months from now. You can imagine I spent a lot of time on the phone week in and week out. And this week, for some reason, maybe it's in the wake of SB8 there in Texas, a lot of despair, a lot of, you know, you guys are really good at what you do, but I'm not sure any of it's going to make any difference. So, Matthew, from where you're sitting looking at the river, what do we need to do between now and next November to make sure that those resounding defeats come to pass? So we all get frustrated. We all get anxious. We all get, you know, down and all of that. All of us do. It's a human condition and watching what's happening is depressing and is upsetting in all of that. We should take moments to rest and relax, but rise again and recall the legacy of all the people that we have celebrated through the years who didn't like lose a battle and say, I'm done and I'm give up, it's all over, whatever, including, you know, the people for civil rights that fought for it for a hundred years and all the things, the women's right to vote and all the things that have taken years and years and decades to accomplish. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And anybody that thinks it's a sprint has deluded themselves. So it's one to understand that and the fight we have today. I mean, it's a little bit like Rogue One, right? I mean, understanding the ability to defeat the Death Star, there was something that occurred before, which was a whole bunch of people that sacrificed in order to make that possible. Not to say that we're all headed for the the end of what happened in Rogue One, (laughs) but we have to be willing to fight the battle today as much as to win it today, but also to set it up to make it more amenable that we can fight it the next time. So that's one. Two is I encourage all of us to both talk to Democrats and enlightened Republicans and independents to say, listen, this is not about tax rates and this is not about that. This is about the fundamentals of our country. And let's all put all that aside for now. We can argue later. We can have a debate later. We can do all of that later. But let's put that aside and support people that are decent people that we know we can win and may not be in a particular person's exact alignment with them, but can win. And we need to do that. We need to talk to Democrats about welcoming the sort of disaffected Republicans and independents within both people that'll vote for them, but also people that may run. That's part of it. And what we need to talk to Republicans, former Republicans, that you have a place here, you will be heard as long as we all stand together as one team and defeat this horribleness. And so I think that's part of it. The battle isn't Democrat-Republican. The battle is, as you know, and you've talked about this, is autocracy versus democracy. And you're either on team democracy or you're on team autocracy. It's not about red and blue and purple and all of that. It is, do you support America and what it stands for or you're not? And that's really the fight. I'm willing to listen to anybody on this as long as I know they're on team democracy. Well, Amen to that. And certainly we will be in that fight. And I will tell you this, if there's one thing that makes me feel better about all of this is that 20 years on from the first time that you and I probably met in Austin, Texas, we have come full circle to be in the trenches again together. And thank God for that. I agree with that. And I'm glad we both see eye to eye that the Democratic Party right now is the only vehicle right now available and that's us in this moment. It's not running independence in Texas. I, that's a fool's errand. And that's only going to reelect Republicans. And I hope people that are independents and people are thinking about that understand that. 
It's getting behind the Democratic Party now, arguing later, getting behind the Democratic Party now and helping them as much as possible win these elections. This is what I say now. There's only one small D Democratic Party left in the country, and it's the big D Democratic Party. I completely a thousand percent agree. Team Blue. (laughs) So, Matthew, before I let you go, you've got a book coming out in November, Revelations on the River. Tell us a little bit about it. Uh, Sure. It's actually a different kind of book. It's not a political book, though. It's written in a context of what we've been through in the last five years, including COVID. And it's much more of a sort of spiritual book. It's uh, as we think about uh, things and everything that we've been through, we're all trying to seek meaning in life and purpose in life. And it talks about big things like fear and love and faith and science and legacy. And it's much more of a personal book about my thoughts and questions that I think people can ask themselves as they try to figure out where they can be in making our neighborhoods and our communities and our country a better place. So it's a sort of spiritual book that I hope resonates with folks. Well, listen, I look forward to reading it as I have read all your previous works and hope to have you back so we can discuss it in particular. Before you go, where can our listeners find you on social media? Best place is Twitter, which is at Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, like the gospel, J. Dowd. D-O-W-D, at Matthew J. Dowd. They can find me on Twitter. And they should know I don't always post political stuff, though I do post pretty direct criticisms of the GOP. I also post a lot of things on writings and spirituality and things like that that I think we all need to take some more time and, and look at as we rise to this challenge. Well, amen to that. And gang, as always, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Matthew, want to say thanks again for joining me. And for everybody else out there, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. 
MyPatriotSupply.com.